Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. This is part two of our Senate Bill 52 podcast. We're jumping right in, so visit episode 82 to catch up on the first part. Enjoy. So kind of switching gears here, the other area where Senate Bill 52 is making some changes is in the area of having a decommissioning plan. So what does Senate Bill 52 require and what does this entail? You want to talk about that one, Eric? I know decommissioning is something that you've yeah. uh, felt very strongly about, the need to have those provisions. And I've reviewed a number of leases that mm-hmm. you and I have talked about that don't have um, a strong decommissioning element to them. So yeah, um, if you don't want to explain what, what we'll be seeing now. Sure. And and I, I really do like a lot of, of what's in SB 52 specifically as it relates to decommissioning, because it, it touches on some of the, the topics that, you know, I think, Peggy, that, that you and I have been talking with landowners about to try and incorporate into their leases, right? So we've been trying to guide some best practices. And, um, you know, first of all, I, I guess at the highest level, so it's SB 52 is requiring that utility skill developers are submitting decommissioning plans prior to the construction of the facility. So they have to submit a, a decommissioning plan that's put together by an engineer and um, reviewed and approved by the power siting board. So some of the things that that must be in that decommissioning plan, and, and just to, to maybe back up one step. So as it, as it is right now, you know, some of the developers are already doing this, others are not. So if you go through and review the applications at the power siting board, um, at one point I looked through and I think about half of them had, had submitted decommissioning plans of some type, but there's additional requirements now within those plans. So not only do you, do you need to submit this plan, but um, you know, it has to list all the, the parties that are going to be responsible for the decommissioning and kind of a, a timeline for when that's going to take place. Uh, can't exceed 12 months. The, the other thing that's interesting is it's requiring an estimate for the full cost of decommissioning the facility. Um, and, and this is interesting because in the past, we would see a lot of, of decommissioning cost estimates. But what they did was they, they, they would kind of outline, here's the cost. And then here's what we think our decommissioning revenue is going to be. And, and what that was is it was based on, on what they were expecting to receive for recycling, essentially, whether that's, you know, the steel of the racking or the posts. Um, and, and in many cases, they were assuming a value to recycle the, the actual solar modules themselves. And so then they would kind of take that one step further and base a lot of the decommissioning bonds and costs off of what's referred to as a net decommissioning cost. So the the actual cost minus the revenue. Uh, Senate Bill 52 doesn't let doesn't allow that. So it's requiring that, you know, we are looking at specifically just the cost of removal, the decommissioning cost, not including any salvage value of the materials. And then this decommissioning cost needs to be recalculated and estimated every five years. And so the important part of that is um, the, the that that recalculation of the decommissioning costs is kind of connected to the requirement of a performance bond that needs to be set in place. So SB 52 requires the developers set in place a performance bond for decommissioning before construction can start. And then that performance bond is reevaluated every five years as the, the decommissioning costs are. 
And if the decommissioning costs increase, then the performance bond value needs to increase as well. Um, if the cost would happen to go down, the performance bond stays the same. So there's a, a lot more clarity in terms of um, you know what's required on decommissioning and the securities that are set in place to remove these projects. The, the other thing that I, I really found interesting in, in the language, and then I'll, I'll be quiet and, and we can hear Peggy's thoughts, but um, it, it requires that estimate for the full decommissioning of the facility, which is the disposal and remo removal of the components. But then it also goes on to say, and the restoration of the land, which the facility is located on to pre-construction conditions. And so I think that's an important part that starts to maybe take this from you know, decommissioning, which to me is just shutting the plant off and removing the components to more of a restoration, right? So remediating the land to its, its pre-construction condition. And I think the fact that that's in this, this legislation is good for landowners um, and good for the industry as the solar industry as a whole, as you look at, you know, they want to be viewed as, you know, how do we restore the land to production at some point in time? And, and hopefully this will help us get measures in place to do that. Yeah, you raised my concern uh, with decommissioning, Eric, and that is that restoration of the land. I've reviewed many leases that just don't go there. They just don't fully address that need. And if we look at the, you know, the life term of a lease, it could be that the generation that is making the leasing decision now is not going to be uh, the landowner in the future who is dealing with decommissioning. And so my concerns have been on that future landowner who is now having to take bear that burden responsibility of removing that project or you know ensuring that the the developer at the time removes it in a way that can restore the land to its prior use which in most cases is agriculture so my hope is that these new provisions <clears throat> will help with that I'd like to see a little more clarity on what is expected in that restoration component of the decommissioning plan, but I guess we'll see that as the power siding board starts reviewing those decommissioning plans. But I'd like to ensure that, you know, that all of the components are removed, not just, you know, three feet below um, and leave, leave everything else in, in the ground and that we deal with compaction issues and other kind of soil quality issues that could have arisen over the lifetime of that project. So my hope is these new provisions will get us to a better place in 30 or 40 years when those leases end and we wanna return the land to agricultural use. And I think that this could serve as, as a good starting point for a landowner, right? Who's going through the, the, the leasing process and, and negotiating lease agreements with their developer. If they can point to this legislation and say, look, you're bound to to estimate the decommissioning cost based on not only removing components but res restoration of the land, you know, to pre-construction conditions. So let's yeah. in this lease agreement establish baselines. So what is the pre-construction condition of this site? You know, what are the expectations of of restoration when the project's done? And you know, whether there's a remediation, uh, I'm sorry, a monitoring period. So you know, I don't know, you look at like some of the oil and gas pipeline standards where they have a monitoring period of, you know, three years. So, and I'm not sure what the right number is, but I just think that this opens the door for landowners to have that conversation to say, look, you, legislation says you need to do that. Let's outline it. And here's our right. baseline. Here's our remediation 
process. Here's the monitoring period. And I suppose the last piece that would be missing from that is, you know, is there a compensation model in place if, if we're falling short of the mark? Mm-hmm. And remember, this new law doesn't apply to those leases that are already in place. And so we still will have, you know, some of those uncertainties in the future with leases that came in before this, this October 11th effective date. Actually, projects that are in process um, within 30 days of that date are not subject to this new law. So we'll see a little bit of a dichotomy um, among leases in Ohio in regards to decommissioning. Thank you guys for that overview. I really want to talk about what the future implications of this law are. Um, As a public utility, as people um, become more concerned about using renewable energy, but also as we see more of our farmland, which we all know is a limited resource, um, being utilized for renewable energy. Um, And I know you guys haven't had a lot of time to analyze this and look into it, but what do you think this all may have for Ohio, for landowners, local level, state level as we move forward? Right. That's a tough question. And I, I think the good thing about Senate Bill 52 is that it has created those conversations, the discussion, trying to look at this issue of renewable energy and also its impacts on agriculture from a state level and try to create, you know, let's, let's all try to get on the same page here as to where we're going with renewable energy in Ohio. So that's the good thing. I think it still puts um, agriculture and renewable energy a bit at odds because we do create these issues of land competition. And as Eric said, these types of facilities take more land. They require more land than other types of power generation. And so, and they also come down to us at a local level where now they're across the road and we're not accustomed to that here in dealing with energy in that way. So it'll be interesting to see how we move forward from here with trying to balance those different needs and how much we can or should rely upon renewable energy in the future. And I know Eric has a few thoughts about that. Yeah. um, Yeah. And, and I've, as as we talk about energy as a whole and and the energy mix in Ohio, um, you know, I've, I've always kind of been in the, on the side that's really looking at what is the right mix. Uh, I just, you know, personally don't see a solution path that's 100% renewable. I, uh, I struggle with that. And so, you know, I think it's important that we really look at, you know, multiple solution paths to, you know, to, to the issues that we're facing related to energy, energy generation. And yeah, renewables are, are certainly going to play a role in that. But as I think about the, the bill and the impacts of, of development, um, I don't necessarily see this as, you know, some type of a bill that's that's anti-renewable, um, you know, is, does it change things? Absolutely. Um, is, is there going to be a break-in period that's, that's, that's maybe a bit challenging and, and, um, you know, causes some issues for, for several projects? Yeah, I, I think that you're probably going to see that. But, you know, I think that the implement, implementing major policy changes, that's, that's just the nature of them, right? You can't make major changes without having some type of, of, uh, of an impact, but I feel like once we get through the process, you're still going to have 
opportunities for development. Um, you know, local communities, local residents and leaders will have the ability to, you know, protect certain areas of the community if they so choose. But, um, you know, the developers, I think, eventually will have a little more security knowing kind of before they ever get to the power siding board that, yeah, we have local buy-in, right? We've already had that local meeting, you know, at the county where this project's going to be. We've presented it to them. We've we've answered questions. We've had that dialogue. And ultimately, they did, they decided to allow the project to proceed. So it's not like you go through all of the work and you get to the siting board process and then you get a bunch of, of local comments that are opposing the project. And then, there, you know, there's a big debate then at that point, it, it allows them to kind of have that early on before they get, you know, more money wrapped up in the application itself and, and moving the, the project forward. So I do think that, you know, down the road, it, it could be a benefit as well. And the other thing to remember as we think about renewables is it's not necessarily the siting that's going to, you know, solely drive the development or, or prohibit the development. There's other factors that impact that, right? So when I think of the energy mix, you know, I think of, you know, resource availability, technology, uh, economics, and then the P's, policy, politics, and public opinion. So we've talked about a couple of those right now. Uh, but the other ones that you need to think about are are the economics, right? So when we, we look at the economics and the policy, those are drivers as well. And, you know, obviously the, the, the cost of solar has been dropping significantly over the last 10 years. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's policy and, and the investment tax credit program that, you know, in 2019 was at 30% investment tax credit. Now we're in a 26% environment, but it's, it's, it's going to drop to 22% here in the future and then ultimately 10%. So there's, there's economic and policy implications that ultimately will impact how much of this development we see as well. Thank you both for your time. This is a really important topic, and I think it deserved a little bit more time that we spent on it. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening are either interested in solar, have seen some solar projects going on. As you mentioned, Eric, there's a lot of them. Um, may even be county commissioners. So if they have questions they want to follow up, um, where should they reach out to you guys? Well, you can find my contact information on the Farm Office website, which is farmoffice.osu.edu. And my phone is there, my email, which is also easy to remember, aglaw at osu.edu. And that's the best way to reach me. Eric? Yeah, so we have a, a number of resources on our, our website as well. Um, the, the link for that is, is go.osu.edu forward slash farm energy. And you'll find resources for a number of topics, including utility scale solar development. Uh, you can also reach me uh, via email. Uh, my email number is, is my last name. So that's Romic, R-O-M-I-C-H dot the number two at osu.edu. And I mentioned to Amanda and Elizabeth that we are going to have some bulletins out that summarize Senate Bill 52 and the different parts of it. So Eric and I will be um, completing those. We hope to have them finished in time for Farm Science Review, and they'll be available there and also on both of our websites. All right. Thank you both. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Hey podcast listeners, 
Just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.